Welcome to Section Hiking the Appalachian Trail. I am your host, John Eskelson, and I'm grateful you've taken the time to listen to this podcast today. For those who want to see pictures from these adventures, please check us out on Instagram. You can find me at Section Hiking the Appalachian Trail at uh, section underscore hiking underscore the underscore AT and on Twitter at Eskelson John which is E-S-K-E-L-S-E-N-J-O-N. If you have any comments or questions you'd like to share, please share your thoughts with me as well. I look forward to hearing them. Now on with the show. This episode is the second we're doing on my recent hike along the Appalachian Trail through the 115 miles of the Shenandoah National Park. Shenandoah is considered one of the most beautiful portions of the trail. And as I mentioned on the last episode, it differs greatly between the various seasons. So some of my observations over the next several episodes may not be apt for when I hiked it, which was in the fall. One of the key differences between hiking up uh, in Shenandoah in the spring and summer versus in the fall is that in the spring and summer, I think there are a lot more bugs. So the last episode, we talked about the first day where I started in Linden, Virginia and ended up near Compton Gap in Shenandoah National Park. After an evening in which I fell asleep early, only to wake up to what I think was a bear, uh, but was some large creature, no matter what it was, I eventually fell asleep and woke up. In this episode, we're going to discuss the second day of the hike, which takes us from Compton Gap at uh, mile marker 966.5 to Matthew Arms Campground at mile marker 955.1. So when I got up in the morning, I was really sore. Um, after the first day's hike. And so I did a lot of stretching uh, to try to work out the kinks. Um, Man, I was really tight. Um, Just calves, hamstrings, hips. Oh my, everything was just really, really tight. Uh, I packed up my gear quickly and started to move out um, for the day's adventure. Compton Gap uh, parking lot was a quarter of a mile away. And in the morning, it was already full of cars of people uh, coming up to look at the leaves. Um, which were turning uh, that weekend. So I hiked up the trail. Um, it goes, it kind of winds its way, you know, as you're heading south, um, it winds its way up out of the parking lot, around and up. So as you're, if you're coming northbound, you'd be heading uh, down the slope, kind of a, uh, around uh, to, to the gap. At just over one and one third miles into the day, about mile marker 965, is the Compton Peak Side Trail. Now, if you head east on on the Compton Peak Side Trail, um, you'll you'll it'll take you down a little bit, and then there's a, to a place where you can climb up on some rocks and look out over the valley, uh, heading towards the east. And it was just really beautiful with lots of oranges and uh, green trees, and just that's not a very apt description, I know, but lots of beautiful trees. And in the spring and summer, I'm sure that the, there's, a, there's a stream there as you go down this route, but it wasn't very strong uh, during the fall. Um, if There's also a number of other places. If you head up to the west and go to the other side of the ridge, um, it's relatively flat. And there's a bunch of different places where you could probably do some backcountry camp, camping there, um, although there isn't a lot of water there. Um, but it was really pretty, and I, I noticed that this would be a good place to camp. I found another camping spot um, 
just around mile marker 966.3 on the west side of the trail, about 1.8 miles beyond Compton Gap. Um, and then just one-tenth of a mile further is another stream. So I guess what I'm saying is that throughout this area in the northern part of the park, there are quite a number of places that have already been established uh, for camping. Um, there's quite a bit of uh, water, and uh, it really should be uh, a pretty uh, resource-wise for sleeping and uh, drinking a number of places, number of good places to go. Um, the next part from the top of uh, Compton Hill or whatever you call it, there's an extended downhill into Jenkins Gap. I found a little spot about mile marker 969 on the side of the road to camp. And a quarter mile later, I came across a section of Jenkins Gap Trail that crosses with the Appalachian Trail. Make sure you follow the white blazes and not the other ones. I think they're blue um, that take you onto Jenkins Gap. For those wondering how the elevations are right now, um, there really isn't a ton of elevation. You've Once you get to the top, uh, top of the uh, hill that gets you up to Compton's Gap, um, it really is pretty flat. There's some gradual ups and downs. But uh, to get to Jenkins Gap, I mean, it's more of an extended downhill, very gentle slope um, heading down the hill more or less most of the way. It is a little discouraging when you kind of turn, find yourself turning back and heading back north along the trail. Um, but then you get down to Jenkins Gap, which is the next kind of valley area in the Shenandoah National Park. And from there, there's a gradual climb. After about 3.3 miles for the day, or approximately mile marker 269.3, the trail levels out again. I noticed that there's camping here on the west side of the trail uh, is possible. Um, about 1.7 miles from Jenkins Gap, you cross over Skyline Drive, about mile marker 962.7. Uh, there's not there's another there's a backcountry site just before getting to Hogswell Flat at mile marker 962.2. Once over on the west side of the trail, there are several flat places to camp, but up on top of North Marshall and Mount Marshall, so this is the area that you're in. You're going to cross over to the uh, eastern side of Skyline Drive. You're in the Mount Marshall area, and so what we're going to do is we're going to climb up over the Marshalls and then back down and then um, eventually cross back over Skyline Drive. Um, above 3,200 feet though on Mount Marshall, you'll see some signs that says, uh, above 3,200 feet, there is no camping. And it's about three quarters of a mile in, uh, in length of the trail. But there are really some several, there are really several pretty overlooks up on top of um, Mount Marshall to get some great views. Um, and then, like I said, just before and then afterwards, as you come off the top of the hill, um, there there are some good backcountry camping spots. At mile marker 960, you then cross Skyline Drive again and move to the western side of the drive and keep on uh, moving south. There's a pretty outlook on the west about mile marker 959.3, just 0.2 miles beyond that. There's some camping along the side of the trail. Uh, the next feature on the trail is Gravel Springs Gap, which is a, you know, it's a it's a valley part, but more specifically for the purposes of this discussion, there is a hut there um, at mile marker 958.9. So 
so you know you go into the uh, gravel springs gap area where there's a parking lot there's also a service road that separates a side trail um, but you can all, you can go down part of it or you can just walk on the hiking part of the trail uh, down to the hut uh, the gravel springs hut now had i been there later in the day i totally would have slept here it seemed like a nice place to stay uh, there's several trail access points that are uh, touch unnerving uh, but it seems like a really, uh, that feed into the hut area, uh, but it seems like a really great place. In addition to the hut itself, there's a privy there and several campsites up along the hill just above the hut, but below the Appalachian Trail itself. I stopped there for lunch, um, and, and it was just a pretty day. I mean, one of the things I did mention earlier is that it was in the 60s, it was sunny, it was warm, it felt good. Um, just it got a touch sweaty as I as I moved. It wasn't that so warm, but uh, uh, it was it was a great place to visit. I really think it's uh, it's better than some of the other places I've seen along the trail. Uh, there's also a spring at the gravel uh, at the gravel springs hut um, with a good water flow. Um, it. it even there was a pretty good water flow. It was a little bit low, but I think again that that was because it was in October and the water was not very strong. I ate a nice lunch there, met several nice hikers, some of them by themselves like me. And then there's three college girls that are hiking together along the trail towards North Marshall. And uh, we're wondering where they could sleep up there. And I gave them whatever information I had and, you know, had taken down in my notes. Soon after lunch, I was heading out and, uh, Cross Skyline Drive again at mile marker 957.6. Uh, one of the things I noticed is that when you go behind the parking lot out there, the trail goes up into the lot and it seems, and it was a bit easy to get lost. And by that, what I meant to say is I was hiking along what I thought was the trail and I kept going forward and it kind of felt like I hit a dead end. And then I kind of tried to turn backwards and thought I saw the trail a little bit further south behind the rocks. And then as I kind of paused and kind of took a, took a, you know, look around my environment, one of the things I realized is that I was not on the trail. I couldn't see the white blazes anywhere. So I kind of went back and I realized there was a, there's a pathway up into the parking lot and then up, up, uh, up further up into the woods. So instead of going down behind the rocks, you go up over the rocks. And it is much simpler than one thinks, perhaps. Um, but for some reason, I got distracted and off on, on the side. Um, so keeping on, uh, kind of heading up several switchbacks, which were pretty tiring to me, up Hogback Mountain. I found a side trail to a spring, which I didn't check out. And at mile marker 955.8, you're at the Hogsback Overlook, um, about three-tenths of a mile from the Hogsback parking lot area. It was at this point that I noticed a side trail that was gonna take me to Matthew's Arms. It was the, I, th I believe it's pronounced the Tuscarora Trail. Um, I was feeling really sore and really tired. Uh, my hip was tight and uh, and I was happy that I was downhill to the campground. I, think, I, I frankly felt like it was uh, took forever to get, get into the park. I was so out of it that when someone asked me where I was headed to, I didn't even think that they're asking about where I was ultimately headed. 
Uh, and I just simply said, Matthew Arms. They kind of looked annoyed and moved on, but I, you know, it is what it was. I think by that time I was, I was really beat after uh, two days of hiking longer than I had. I'm obviously not in as good a shape as I had hoped. But as I got to the campground, I walked up to the ranger hut and registered. I believe the cost was $15 for the night. I uh, drugged myself up to the site assigned to me, unpacked the, the setup for camp and made dinner. I'll say I made full use of the bathrooms near my site to clean my hands and face and use the bathroom. I'm still learning how to be used, get used to uh, pooping in the woods. The bathrooms were nice though. So I, and then I basically put 90% of what I owned in the bear box, read my book and went to sleep because I was that tired. What I would say about Matthew Arms is it's called a primitive site. Um, it's it's just it's no more primitive than any other established campsite that I've ever been to. I guess it's primitive in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of fancy accoutrements to it. There's not a ton of you know extras at the aside from the bathrooms. I mean they don't have showers, which is fine. Um, it's just a pretty basic setup. There's a lot of RV, RVs there and uh, families camping, and but it was, it was nice. Um, I guess a couple things I could add about Matthew's Arms uh, Campground, what it's like. Um, it's uh, in a valley um, near Jenkins Gap, and I guess the main thing is, is it's organized into three loops. I mean, it is possible to make reservations ahead of time, um, but like most parks, uh, most sorry, most camping areas within the Shenandoah National Park, if you're a backpacker, um, it's pretty obvious, A and B, they will usually find a spot for you if they don't have one um, available. I know that in some of the other places um, that I camped at, that there were some spots reserved for walk-ins, uh, walk-in backpackers, um, even when, you know, the big, you know, the sites were considered all the way filled up. But in Matthew's Arms, there's three loops. There's the A loop, the B loop, and the C loop. Um, most of them come with uh, bear boxes. Um, a, there's a padded, kind of a flat area that's designed for your tent or whatever you're going to sleep in. And then there's a drive-in area where you can park your vehicle or whatever it is you're driving in. Um, there's also a fire pit associated in a in a table um, with every with every campsite. I mean, for for a backpacker, it's seen, it's a dream. It seemed just great and wonderful. Um, it was pretty crowded when I was there in October. I'm sure in the spring and summer, it's likewise fairly fairly crowded and, and full. Um, it was pretty quiet though. Um, the night, I mean, there's a lot of people there and there's quiet talking into the night, but I, and I think probably because I was so tired, um, I wasn't, you know, really interested in socializing with the people around me. Um, the, the big thing about Matthew Arms that I noticed is that they're very proud of all the bears that feel comfortable walking through there. There's a real huge emphasis on uh, keeping bears out of your stuff, using the the uh, bear box. I, um, it, they made note that bears are able to get into cars if they're unlocked. They've learned how to do that and a few other 
bear-related items. They're very nervous about the bears. Um, I don't know really what else I can tell you about it, but it, it it's it's a really nice basic basic campsite, and I love the fact that they consider it primitive, and yet they have showers and dumpsters and recycling bins. Um, it seems like a great place to take my wife and daughter back to, um, you know, once things get open. Uh, that's that's the other thing. They're open from March to October, so around the first of November they close up, and and you can make reservations if you know when you're going to be going. Uh, you know when you're going to need to be there um, on, I believe it's recreation.gov, um, where they have their reservation site. Um, one of the things I loved about some of the camping spots, uh, established campgrounds in Shenandoah National Park, um, aside from the amenities, is that like every once in a while, when we when we talk a little bit later about Big Meadows, when I where I also stayed, I was able to kind of have a place where I didn't have to think about um, my camp setup so much because my camp setup was already done. The focus was able to be on like, what am I carrying? What do I need? What can I get rid of? And here uh, at both the two campsites I was at, I was able to figure out, okay, I really need this. I really don't need this. So for instance, at Matthew Arms, I, I brought along with me as camp shoes, a pair of flip-flops, but they're terrible. And you know, I, brought them because they're super light, not because they're very effective. But it turns out that I was just trying to get rid of excess weight and they were kind of already broken after two days. And I, so I just put them in the dumpster. Anyway, that's all I have about Matthew arms. So where am I after two days on the trail? I am sitting at a table trying to shove calories into my mouth, feeling absolutely exhausted trying to kind of sort out, am I, is the soreness in my hip bad enough that I need to stop? Is my body just rebelling that I haven't, um, that it's just rebelling over the fact that I've hiked 30 miles in two days, you know, what's going on. Um, so I, I, uh, I ate my dinner. And, um, you know, that, that was probably something that didn't go very well. Um, one of the things, one of the dinners that I'd made and made three dinners with was a dehydrated yam dish, um, where you add some sugar and cinnamon and some other ingredients. And it's supposed to, when it's rehydrated and reconstituted, supposed to be a, um, like a, like a Thanksgiving meal or candy yams type dish. The problem is I hadn't tested it. I didn't test it before I went on the trip and it didn't work uh, for me. And it just was a timely reminder that I needed to try out these dishes I'm going to eat before I actually go on the trip and not just wait until I get out there to see if they work. That was problematic because, you know, while I had plenty of food, more food than I needed, um, it did make me reassess a little bit what I was gonna, actually going to eat. Um, I did have some smoked salmon from Patagonia Provisions that I was able to eat instead, um, which turned out and turned out to be very delicious. So that so dinner I got dinner, but I but the the candied yams dish did not work well, and I'm going to have to figure out what didn't work well and, and kind of reassess that going forward. I'm going to tell you something that really went well 
um, all throughout the trip that I'm very happy with is I downloaded uh, Gaia GPS and I got the app for my phone and downloaded the maps and I would follow the maps and I could see exactly where I was on the trail. Um, I always print out hard copies of the maps as well, um, just to have them with me in case my phone dies um, or something happens electronically. But then I put the phone on uh, airplane mode and have the map on my phone up. And it is a delightful app. Um, it is something that works really well and I'm very pleased with and I'm really happy to have. I, I really encourage, uh, they've, they've added a bunch of different layers. Um, there's a specific Appalachian Trail layer that, that you, they have that makes the trail and the facilities along the trail very clear and very uh, easily identifiable. Um, but they've added a bunch of new layers and you can learn a whole bunch of things about the area that you're hiking in, um, especially in backcountry conditions. Um, I would recommend the premium level. Um, there's a free service, but there's also an in-between, and then there's the premium level, which is about 40 bucks a year. There's lots of ways, if you look at different websites, um, there's lots of places that will give you, get, where Gaia has given people discounts to, uh, to buy their premium service um, of 20, 30, 40%. And so I, I would encourage uh, anyone who is a backpacker to go into and get Gaia GPS um, for more specific backpacking, like backcountry specific. Um, I've heard that when you combine CalTopo, which is more of a um, do it do it yourself kind of figure out the layers and the various things in the route finding, um, you can you can develop a map of the trail on CalTopo and then import it into Gaia GPS with its various filters. And it's a really powerful combination of uh, software tools for route finding. I'm going to be looking um, more at uh, preparing uh, digitally, you know, digital route finding um, going forward. I'm not ready to go beyond where I am right now, at least on the podcast. But I would say that if you haven't yet, I go to Gaia GPS, and it's and it's great. And I'm not sponsored by them or paid by them in any way. So the last thing I wanted to identify is, you know, what do you do if you do go into shock? Now, I was in tough shape. Uh, my body was hurting, as I've mentioned previously. Um, my hip was really sore. Um, there's a lot of ways to look at it. Um, so I was just looking up, like, what if my body really was into some serious, serious shock? And I... You know, this is something that really is, I, I guess if I was in a place like Matthew's Arms, I would go to the ranger hut and get help from the rangers and make sure that they were able to help me get the, the appropriate first aid. Um, but the thing that I, you know, first of all, the thing is like, how do you diagnose shock? The first thing about shock is that it's a circulatory problem with someone who's been hurt or been under great stress. So and that you're not able to provide blood to all parts of the body. So I don't know what was going on um, with me, except I, I think it might have been something like that, um, where I was pushing my body in a way that I was not accustomed to. And, and so my body was just reacting poorly to that. And the way you kind of get that sense of whether you have shock or not is that you have feelings of weakness, uh, confusion, fear, or dizziness. Um, skin is moist, clammy, cool, or pale. 
uh, and you have a quick weak pulse or uh, erratic breathing, nausea, vomiting, and extreme thirst. You know, it, I, I must not have been in shock because I didn't have that, but I did have a bit of a shiver. Um, and I just didn't want to walk any further. I was just really, really tired. And I think I just needed a lot of sustenance that because I hadn't eaten as much as I, I should have. And perhaps because it was warm, but not overly so, I didn't drink as much uh, during the day. I needed to drink more water. But the question then is, how do you treat shock? And the first thing you need to do is, is usually there's an injury associated when someone has shock. Um, although the patient may not be affected with light, um, you need to treat every accident victim who, who has some sort of uh, injury as though they did have shock. And this is what you ought to do. So the first thing to do is eliminate causes of shock by making sure their breathing and heartbeat are restored and controlled, making sure if there's any bleeding that, that is stopped and controlled, treating wounds and relieving pain. The second thing is to watch them closely, make sure that their airways aren't blocked. Um, if the person is injured, have them lie down if they're not already doing so, and then keep them from being chilled and overheated. I think that's the part that made me think maybe I'm in shock is because I was getting some chills um, towards the end of the day. Um, that was resolved for me by getting in my sleeping bag and being able to be nice and warm. And, uh, and then, you know, the last thing you're supposed to do is summon for emergency aid. I really didn't think I was actually that hurt or that I was hurt at all. Otherwise, I would have gone to the ranger and gotten help. Um, one of the things that um, my guidebooks say about shock is that fear and uncertainty can increase the shock. So uh, having a calming reassurance that the patient is, that, that you're doing everything for the person who is, who is suffering from shock is going to help them relieve that fear and uncertainty. I think maybe one of the things I was afraid of was that I wasn't going to be able to make it or that my body wasn't going to be able to handle it. So I, I just, you know, shock is a, is a, is a common uh, re bodily reaction to injury. And when you're in the back country or even in the front country along the Appalachian Trail, it's something that needs to be taken seriously and can be relieved with just taking a, taking a time out, um, getting calm, treating other issues if they've arisen, and keeping people warm and nourished and fed. Um, like I said um, in a previous episode of this podcast, my dad had three rules growing up. Make sure that you're dry, make sure that you're fed, and make sure that you're warm. And if you can do all those three things, you're probably going to be in pretty good shape overall on a backpacking trip. Thank you for listening to this episode of Section Hiking the Appalachian Trail. I'm glad that you took the time to learn more about the trail and the adventures that me and my friends are having along it. If you would like, please subscribe to hear more about uh, this trip. And uh, as we hike more sections of the AT, we will post more, uh, more content. Also, please leave a review and give us a rating. We welcome your feedback. And finally, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at sectionhikingtheat or follow me on Twitter at Eskelson John. Until next time, happy trails.